We come in our studies of Matthew's Gospel to chapter 18 today. Matthew 18, I'm going to read the first nine verses. Scholars understand this chapter to be a unified address of Jesus, the fourth such one. The first, of course, being the Sermon on the Mount. There's another to come in the what we call the Olivet Discourse. But this is a relatively compact address of Christ talking about the ways in which disciples, his disciples, will relate to him and to one another in particular. And some of you may recognize that in chapter 18, 15 and following, we have a very important issues that lead us even into the matters of church discipline. I'm going to try to look at those carefully in weeks to come. Listen first now to God's Word, Matthew 18, beginning at verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of things that cause people to sin. Such things must come. But woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fires of hell. These words of our Lord are part of God's own holy word. Let us receive it as that today. A man named David Brainerd was 29 years old when he died in 1747. David Brainerd studied for the ministry at Yale College, but he did not graduate. He was later ordained, but he never became a pastor of an organized church, even though several pulpits were offered to him. He never married, so he left no descendants after him. David Brainerd was a self-appointed missionary to Delaware Indians in a part of the United States, not too far north from here, northeastern Pennsylvania and up into the Hudson Valley and parts of western Connecticut. Brainerd rode a horse through forests that had nothing but paths, no map to guide him, discovering Indian villages, learning the language, living with the people, eating their food, gradually being accepted by them, and then, of course, being able to exercise his goal, which was to make Jesus Christ known to them. Eventually, a number of Native American villages came to know and love 
Brainerd and welcome his ministry, and there was a considerable response. But David Brainerd contracted tuberculosis in the midst of what he was doing in his late 20s. It didn't stop him, didn't send him to a sanitarium or a hospital. In fact, basically ignoring his illness, he slept in damp forest campsites and continued his ministry until just before his 30th birthday, he died at the home of his fiancée, Jerusha Edwards, who was, of course, a daughter of the famous pastor, Reverend Jonathan Edwards, in Massachusetts. You would think a short life, snuffed out, not much of a legacy to endure. Well, one legacy that did endure was Brainerd's battered, weather-stained diary that he apparently had kept for his own purposes, not for necessarily the public eye. But this passed into the possession of Jonathan Edwards, who took it and added biographical comments and published it. And that book, The Life and Diary of David Brainerd, has remained in print almost continuously for 260 years. It narrates a life that many people consider to be a stunning example of Christ-like humility. Hundreds of people, literally, have gone to the mission field or into the ministry over the years with the reading of that life and diary as a main inspiration for their calling. Inspired by this candle-in-a-wind kind of life of so few years known only in print. There is an even more interesting behind-the-scenes story to Brainerd, though. Why did he do this? What triggered him to undertake such a ministry? In fact, there's an incident in which he was expelled from Yale College. That's why he didn't get his degree. Because in a moment of anger, he made an insulting remark about a professor, a professor whom he judged not to be a Christian. And speaking to another student, he said, Mr. Blank has no more grace than that chair. And it was probably a true statement. But nevertheless, he paid for that because his remark was reported. Brainerd confessed. I said it. He was sorry, but he was expelled. And he used this as an occasion to really look at himself and look at his life and to, in self-examination, saw what he considered to be a, a rather large amount of arrogant pride in his young heart. Repenting of that, he determined before God not to punish himself as such, but rather to say, my pride needs to be brought down. And therefore, I will undertake whatever low ministry is offered to me. If it is a ministry that seems to lead on a path towards comfort and any kind of fame or notice, I will not take that. I will go to serve the low ones who no one else is going to serve. And so Brainerd had a ministry that saw a little in terms of human applause at first, but through the writings of his diary and biography, Today, many would say he stands with the great ones in the kingdom of God, for he served a master whom he knew had said, whoever loses his life 
for my sake, and the Gospels shall find it. All of Matthew 18, as I've said, is a discourse by Jesus on how disciples should live in close relation to him and one another. And there's a stress that runs throughout the chapter on the theme of lowliness, humility, and forgiveness. If we're going to expect to be called children of God under the care of a heavenly Father, then childlike qualities of helplessness, vulnerability, weakness, and dependence will be becoming to us. Now, the marvel is that this chapter begins, as I read, with the disciples discussing something that leaves us just amazed. By the way, near the end of the previous chapter, Jesus, for the second time, verse 22 of chapter 17, emphasized the necessity of his death, that he was going to Jerusalem, there to be abused and killed, and he would be raised the third day. This is at least the second time that he has explicitly said this. This is what I'm about. And we think, incredible. You people are still talking about who's going to be great in this kingdom. But Matthew tells us that they came and actually asked him that. Who is the greatest in the kingdom? They were ruminating in their mind about what they saw as cabinet posts that would be open when Jesus was known as Messiah somehow. And they wanted to know which of them would occupy these, possibly the fact that Jesus had already recently singled out Peter, James, and John for special privilege, had the others grumbling a little bit. What's so special about them, you know? Who's going to be the greatest? Well, I would tell you that these problems about pride and status have not gone away in modern times. They've not even gone away among spiritual leaders. I would just about guarantee you today that if you gathered together five pastors who had never met one another before, put them in a room and said, get acquainted, within 30 minutes for certain, each man would know the membership size of every other man's congregation. We find those things out. And somehow to our sinful flesh, it matters. Jesus was teaching in Matthew 18 that a prime enemy of, the, of Christian discipleship for anyone, not just pastors, is our innate drive to be prominent, to have a title, to have some kind of status, to have some kind of influence over other people. But he rejected this. He rejected all ideas of personal rank and status. In fact, he taught us that in his kingdom, the way up, is down. And eternal greatness is not achieved by personal accomplishment or vaunted pride, but by meekness in receiving the grace of God. Christ looks for disciples who have a low humility that knows its own weakness very well and depends on Christ and Him alone for saving and sustaining grace. That's our theme today. Well, Matthew 8, 1 to 9 has two main points here and two only that I'm going to bring out. The first is this. Greatness before God means a reversal of worldly competition. Now, I would not tell you that the word competition is an altogether bad word. It has its place. Competition is not wrong in its proper sphere. 
within business. If we did not have competition, we would not have capitalism, which many people believe is the finest and healthiest economic system that the world has seen, certainly far superior to socialism or communism. You need a certain competition in the world. Without competition, there'd be no sports where teams and individuals would not vie to reach the next height or break the record or whatever it is they're trying to do. But that kind of rivalry is not a core value for how Christian disciples must relate one to the other. And so we read of Jesus' object lesson here, certainly a vivid one. He called a little child and had him stand among them and said, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom. Notice the question was, who is great? He said, you won't even enter, let alone be great, unless you become like this child. The Greek word paideia for child here is there's several different words for different stages of of young life, and paideia is the youngest stage, the infant, the toddler. This is not a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old. It's a little one, the, the one that we put in the nursery. Some mother perhaps handed Jesus her baby, and he held that, or a little two-year-old came alongside and sat in his lap, and he said, unless you become like this, you won't even enter the kingdom of God. And this is confusing. Surely it was confusing to minds then as it is now, for children are people to be looked after, not looked up to. What did he mean? Children, little infants, are at the bottom, and in that century, by the way, even more so than today. They're at the very bottom of the status totem pole. They don't write books. They have no formal education. They don't run for office. They don't wield power over others. Well, what does this mean? Every parent can certainly tell you that young children have some attributes about them that are not so admirable. Can we agree on that, parents? They are self-centered. They are impatient. They, when they're unhappy, they can make everyone around them unhappy very easily. They have little intellectual knowledge to impart. Their attention span is very short. I don't think Jesus was talking about any of those things. What is he talking about? What is this childlikeness? There are some attributes he considers to be positive that carry over to disciples. One is, and I think the predominant one, is certainly the weakness and dependency of a child. A toddler needs a parent for 100% of all daily requirements, moment to moment. They can, you turn them completely loose by themselves in a field somewhere, and they'd last, maybe they'd play in the mud for a little bit, but quite soon they would start to look around and say, where is someone who's going to feed me or care for me or hold me or show me where to go? They cannot manage on their own. They cannot go to a grocery store and get food and bring it home and know what temperature to set the oven for and how long to cook it for a meal. And the little little two-year-old girl will not go out and get a job and earn money for rent to put shelter over her head. Daily protection and nurture has to come from someone else. And then there's that sense in which they not only need everything, but a child is happy to allow you to give him everything. 
Children love to be given things, don't they? You know, an extra coin in your pocket, some little trinket. doesn't have to cost a lot of money. They love cardboard boxes and wooden spoons as well as expensive things from Toys R Us. And they just take things that adults give, and, and maybe you've taught them by three or four to say thank you, but thank you is a learned response. They just think, I'm so glad to have this. I'm glad you recognize my, my need to receive all things. They receive gifts willingly, don't they? In some ways, it's a shame that many adults outgrow that completely. So completely that there are adults who become overly independent and they don't even know how to graciously accept a gift. Oh, no, don't give me anything. Even when somebody wants to sincerely honor them or help them or or just express love to them. They can't accept a gift without thinking, well, what am I going to do to pay that back again? The two-year-old doesn't ever think that. And, you know, here's here's a fact that we act this way with our Creator. We can't accept His gifts. And we think if he, he is going to give something, well, I'll have to be on my good behavior to merit having received that love of God. Uh, how can I barter with God? Maybe I can, you know, make some promises to him and build up a little contract of how I'll behave, and, and then I'll get a particular favor from him that I want. We've lost our childlikeness in receiving the gifts of God. But another issue besides weakness and dependency and receiving of gifts is, is uh, the unconsciousness of status that a child has. Now, I know that on the playgrounds, this kind of quickly fades as some bully begins to move in and establish that he's the king of the playground and the other children learn they have to submit or something to that person. But at least at the very early stage, infants have no consciousness of status among others. They don't come and say, well, my family name is such and such, and therefore I get the best crib in the nursery, or anything of that kind. There's no guile in them in the early stage, no hypocrisy. They're not wearing a mask. What you see is what you get. And This is a quality, Jesus said, would be tremendous. It must be seen in my disciples. Now, isn't humility kind of a tricky trait to talk about? If you start to look for it in yourself, even that becomes an interesting exercise because you might look around at yourself and say, hmm, well, I'm doing quite well in the humility department. Thank you very much. I think my humility quotient is way up there. And, of course, that very examination is self-defeating. You can be too proud of your humility. Calvin said, a man is truly humble who neither claims any merit in the sight of God nor proudly despises any other believer nor aims at being superior to anyone. And I want you to notice that Jesus said this is a quality not just for uh, some measure of greatness, it's a quality for entering the kingdom of heaven. You must be childlike. You must throw yourself upon God in weakness and dependency and say, oh God, I have nothing and I need everything and you alone can give it. And in the merits of Christ, I ask you for this wonderful gift of your salvation. 
And it's not merely the, the thing that helps you enter the door of salvation. It's a continual requirement that he expects a disciple to show throughout his life. Well, then the question is, how are people who are taught that to get ahead in this world is to be competitive and to joust and to use your elbows a little bit to move ahead of people? You, know, you, you, should, you should see people sometimes at the food lines. <laughs> I love it. Uh, if you've ever been in Europe, it's really interesting. Americans are relatively polite at something like a banquet line. You know, we, we pray at the beginning, uh, and we have a buffet, and we say, all right, here's, here's it. We'll give thanks, and now go get the food. And Well, we, you know, you move pretty fast towards the line, but you're relatively polite. You don't knock people down. In Europe, it's, it's really interesting. You go to certain parts of the world, and it is a stampede. It is, you know, we don't care about you. I'm going to be there first, and you're not going to get it before me. And it's not a line going down the side of the table. It's people on all sides of the table. Whoop. Now you should see it some places if you ever travel. We are not humble people by nature. We are self-seeking. We're driven by some kind of an engine of pride. Even, even the quietest of us looks out pretty well for number one. So Jesus here is seeming to ask for something that's the opposite of our, of our nature, and it's also the opposite of the whole methodology that we're taught in this world for getting ahead and succeeding. How are we to have this humility, this childlikeness? Well, he tells us in verse 3 how it will happen. It's not by any method that we're going to try or accomplish. He says, unless you change Unless you undergo a conversion here, a complete turnaround, you won't even enter my kingdom. You remember Nicodemus in John chapter 3 with his total puzzlement of Jesus talking about, well, how does a man get born from above? Does he enter his mother's womb? And so, I don't understand this. You know, Nicodemus was a Ph.D. He couldn't figure it out. But Jesus was saying it needs a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit of God. And all that we can do is recognize the need of it and cry out to God and say, Oh, God, I need to be changed. Change me. Change me. Turn me from this pride of mine. Cast it down. I repent before you. We need to tell God that we know how proud we are. That's what David Brainerd had to do. That's what Saul of Tarsus had to do. Hardly ever was there a more proud man who came to Christ than Saul. My goodness, this man thought he was superior to everybody. And the Lord put his face in the dirt and blinded him for a while so that that pride of his could be humbled and die. We tell God we know we're unworthy and we need his grace. And you know, of course, Saul of Tarsus isn't our pattern. Jesus is our pattern. Jesus, who had no need to humble himself and yet came from heaven's height to the lowest depth of earth, took on the lowest role of all, died for people who despised him, and then was raised to the highest height again. Many will say that the surest mark of true conversion to Jesus Christ is measured by a newborn humility in a person's life. A teachable spirit is there. A modesty that is not willing to 
boast about itself or push itself ahead of other people, a willingness to take on works of service because no longer do you see yourself as the one, or, you know, like the queen bee around whom everybody else is supposed to come, but you say, well, who am I anyway? In light of what God has done for me, I must go and serve. And that's the practical test where you can see, is Christ working in this life? Is pride slowly being put to death? Maybe not all overnight, but by degree, is there something there that we could call true humility? Jesus certainly teaches here that he looks for a reversal of the human standard of competition for the childlikeness of his disciples. Well, secondly, once God's Spirit has converted us from our natural pride to this humility that is part of God's gift in salvation, Jesus goes on at verse 5 to turn a corner a little bit and state a different point. He still was talking about the child, but not only that child. I'm not, I don't really think, and many agree with me, that he, in 5 and 6 he's only talking about children, but he's talking about all those who are childlike, all those who have this humility. Like, children are included. But so are disciples. So are those who have the humility he was talking about. When he says, whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me, but woe to anyone who causes these little ones, all the people he's been talking about, to sin. It would be better to have a millstone hung about their neck and to be thrown into the depths of the sea than to do this. All of a sudden, the matters become very dire. And the second point says that you will be judged by how you treat Christ's least and lowly people. He's not just talking about children alone, although they're included, but all childlike disciples, these who believe in me, he includes in verse 6. You see, whenever somebody's trying to be great through self-exaltation, they're inevitably trampling on other people. To achieve success the way the world defines it, you have to step on people. You have to at least push people aside. And in Christ's kingdom, or in that kingdom of the world, people expect, you know, the low people, the people who don't count, the people without college degrees, the people who aren't so smart, the poor. Why, they're just supposed to serve those of us who are somebodies. But in Christ's kingdom, it's all reversed. Those who thought they were important now deliberately go out of their way to serve the weak and the lowly. And that includes fellow believers, young children, the elderly, the unborn, the poor, and those who are disadvantaged in any way. Why else should someone living in a three dollars or $400,000 house in America deliberately go to a slum in Nairobi where people live in shipping crates and smell the open sewers for the privilege of going and praying with dying AIDS patients in Africa. Why? Why? Because Jesus wants us to be there. Because one of the things we're accomplishing is the forcible subduing of our active pride. You see, you don't cultivate Christ-like humility by sitting in the pew and saying, oh, well, I hear what the pastor's saying, and I feel very humble today. That's not enough. Humility has to be seen. 
and it's seen in acts of service. To somebody who is a lonely shut-in, some child who needs a tutor, some unwed mother who needs counsel to help her in a crisis in her life. If I asked you who are the greatest teachers of God's Word in this congregation, I would not accept your probable response because you might say pastors or elders. Apply the logic of Jesus. Perhaps the greatest teachers of God's Word in this congregation are the kindergarten and toddler's teachers who've been at that task for 10 or 12 or 15 years, making known to the little ones the basic concepts of the Word of God. Maybe it's the youth leaders. You know, uh, there's a a pastoral totem pole. Uh, So many people think, oh, you start out as a youth pastor. Oh, that's not so much. And then someday you get to be an exalted senior pastor. Let me tell you, I think the youth pastors who succeed and endure and apply themselves and serve our young people are highly to be honored as they serve in that humble place of ministry. The Lord Jesus says, don't trifle with my precious ones. This figure of a millstone, you know, it's so graphic you can see it. I mean, you know what's going to happen if you have a millstone, a huge stone that you can't even pick up, somehow fastened by a chain to your neck, and you're put in the ocean, you're done. This is a sentence of eternal death. And Jesus is saying, don't trifle with the weak people in my kingdom. Don't trifle with the new Christian, the lambs of the congregation who need tender care and encouragement and instruction. Don't trifle with the elderly who may, in your eyes, somehow seem to be beyond their usefulness to the kingdom. Don't trifle with the unborn children. These are my lambs. And I watch how they're cared for, and there will be an accounting. The suffering of every martyr is close to the heart of Christ, and there will be an accounting. This dramatic figure of speech here about cutting off a hand or a foot or gouging out an eye, we know he's not speaking literally, but what is he saying? He's saying how you treat the little ones, how you serve is of such importance that if you're going against this, if you're sinning against this, you'd better consider it as important as losing an eye or a hand to turn around and see a change because otherwise you're on a path toward death. In summary today, I would say that the first and foremost quality marking every disciple of Jesus Christ is humility. I didn't used to see that. I think God has taught me that in later years of my ministry, the first and foremost quality marking a disciple of Jesus Christ is humility. If we will be great in the kingdom of Christ, it will be as God pours out grace to us, as we empty ourselves and say, Lord, I'm nothing. What do you want me to do? Is there some job that nobody else is taking up that needs to be done? that has no glamour about it and no status and no title and no salary. Let me be empty enough to be filled by your grace that I might do that. There are popular things being taught from Christian pulpits today that say that Jesus wants to bring you heightened self-esteem, greater financial success, 
more power and influence other, over other people, those are blatant lies. They are not the gospel. They are a mockery of this New Testament gospel that always has a cross and the death of pride at the center of it. Twelve disciples didn't learn it yet this day because you'll see in, a, I think it's chapter 20, when the mother of James and John says, comes, you know, the, the, the discussion is still alive. Which of my sons is going to be greatest at your right hand, Jesus? And as they went into the upper room, they were still talking about it. Which one of us is going to be the greatest? They had thick heads. And so do we. So do we. And we have less excuse because we live on this side of the cross. If you know Jesus as Lord, the one way to rise high in his service is to go to the lowest place and do the lowly task. Worldly ambition will kill your soul. Jesus wants no grand or glamorous people in his church. He wants humble servants. Therefore, let your ambition be focused on what James, the brother of the Lord, said in chapter 4 of his letter, and I close with it. God is opposed to the proud, opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Amen. Father. I thank you for the radical nature of Jesus' requirements. Only you can satisfy these things in us, Lord. We all acknowledge pride. We want to be served. We want to be comforted. We think that we deserve some measure of status. I pray, O oh God, that at the altar of the cross, we might see what our Savior did there for us and come and ask you to put pride to death and fill us with this humble grace of our Savior himself that we might serve you to your honor and praise. Amen.